The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Last week I began with you a what I consider to be a short series considering the eventful life of God's servant Joseph in the latter portion of the book of Genesis. Chapter 37 is where it really begins. I just tried to give you a, a taste for the story, the biography, last time with verses 1 to 11. I pick up the biography of Joseph, which is more than a biography. It's really a display of the providence of God in a life. And I'm picking it up at verse 12 of Genesis 37. I'm not even going to cover all the things of his captivity and things that happen. I'll catch up with that next time. But I want you to see a little further into the basic incidences of this life and God's working in a family that was really quite a humdinger of a family. Listen to God's word as I read from Genesis 37, beginning at verse 12. Now the brothers of Joseph went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel, that's Jacob, said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. And so he said to him, Go now and See if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. A man found him wandering in the fields, and the man asked, What are you seeking? I'm seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. The man said, They have gone away, but I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from afar. Before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of these pits, and we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we'll see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben, that's the oldest of the brothers, heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. Reuben said to them, Shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him. He said this so that he might rescue him out of their hand and restore him later to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore. They took him and threw him into a pit, The pit was empty, there was no water in it, and they sat down to eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum and balm and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Judah, that's another of the older brothers, said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and 
not let our hand be upon him, for he's our brother, our own flesh. And the brothers listened to him. And so Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. And they took Joseph to Egypt. This is the word of God. Most of us are not nearly old enough to remember or easily recognize the name of the late billionaire from Germany, Friedrich Flick. If you had grown up in Germany, especially some decades ago, you would know Friedrich Flick the way we know names like Rockefeller or Trump or Zuckerberg as great designers of industry and billionaires developing many things within the country of Germany. In fact, Flick was one who had a big role in building up the armament factories in Germany that served Hitler, and he was tried as a war criminal after the World War II. But he didn't die until 1972, and when he did, the character of Flick as a father and head of a family was easily displayed because here was a man hard as nails. He could drive a bargain with just about anybody and come out winning, I guess. His business empire was so extensive, he had holdings in 200 different companies. And he left his children without knowing much of his love or tenderness. And uh, for decades after his death, the courts of Germany were filled with the lawsuits of the Flick relations fighting over the billions that uh, they all, of course, wanted a big stake in. Well, there was a family that wasn't much in the way of biblical family life. God, in his wisdom, created the human family as a cradle for spiritual and moral and social development. That's true just as much today as it was in the day of Genesis And we're not speaking of something old-fashioned when we say God gave the mother a primary role of nurture and the father a primary role of leadership and protection. Studies actually show, many sociological studies will show that particularly when a father is active as a positive presence in a home, there is about a 75% chance that the children of that home will eventually follow the parents' spiritual and moral principles that are instilled just because a father was there. And of course, we know how many fathers are not there these days. In direct contrast to the materialistic mess of Friedrich Flick's family in Germany, you could go to a completely opposite family and speak of the 18th century descendants of Jonathan and Sarah Edwards. Edwards, the brilliant American theologian and man of God, and his wife Sarah was equally a woman of God. The Edwards were famous for their 11 children, and so remarkable and memorable were they as a family. Many people spoke of it who spent even one night under their roof. Uh, Just what a marvelous family this was, full of joy, well-disciplined, respectful toward each other, great love for God, obedience to the parents. People kept track and traced the many marriages and descendants of the 11 Edwards children and 
put that, carried that out over, I guess, six or seven generations. And it's just an amazing thing to read about. You cannot even count all the preachers, teachers, college presidents, judges, governors, members of Congress, authors, musicians, a vice president of the United States, and what a heritage, all from the lineage of this one couple, Jonathan and Sarah Edwards. Complete contrast to what we see so much of today. One godly household, probably extreme, of course, in the way their values were produced in their, in their offspring, but nevertheless demonstrating a heritage for godliness and discipline and morality that was amazing to behold. Of course, we see the negative side of this today. We have among us single moms who do a heroic task and face the downside of what I talked about with no father present in the home. We face the situation in good old conservative Lancaster County, which is somewhere pretty close to the national average that children born in our hospitals of Lancaster County, I've checked, and I'm told that it's pretty close to the national average of 40% born without a husband, or with, there may be a man in the picture somewhere, but he's not the husband of the woman giving birth. And so we have women who have had to invent a new title. They talk about their baby daddies, not their husbands. And thousands of children grow up with no concept of a nuclear family with husband and wife, with mutual love and respect and security in a home. Yes, too, we can look, and this isn't just the inner city. Check out our suburbs, and our pastors will tell you that in the finest suburbs, in the $500,000 homes, there is abuse and there is adultery. And there is lack of respect and material emphasis over anything spiritual or moral. And yet, as bad as the contemporary side of family life might be today, I tell you the Word of God reaches high, unbelievable levels in telling us of families that are negative examples of how not to order life in a home. I actually came to this as somewhat of a surprise or a shock a number of years ago that it seemed to me that, and I haven't done an exact count, but if you went through the Bible and looked at most of the notable marriages, and I mean notable either positive or negative, at how many marriages and how many homes gave a wonderful positive example of what God wants to see, and how many gave a negative example, I think the second category would win out in at least in number of them, in the Bible. Isn't that kind of amazing? That God teaches us as much by the bad example as he does by the positive example. Well, in that bad example, at least at the beginning of it all, was the home of Jacob. Father of Joseph and all these other sons, they certainly set the bar pretty high for lousy family life. John Calvin commented on the story of Joseph within that family, and here's what he said. Jacob, he said, seemed to be bringing up devils in his home. How, he asked, could the salvation of the world through the nation of Israel ever have proceeded from such vicious offspring as these sons of Jacob? 
Well, I give you another truth that may be a hard one to face, and, and maybe you would really dispute that I'm wrong about this. But I want to say to you that, again, as a generalization at least, all of us, I've learned, come from families that are dysfunctional in some way or other. Certainly many people more so than others. But if you look around and look at the family you came from and maybe the family you're in now, and you say, well, where are the cracks? Where are the broken places? Where are the relationships that are not at all what they could be? Are any of those things true of me? I think if you're honest, you would realize it is so in most families. And the reason for that is because every one of us is 100% a card-carrying sinner. And we're the ones that make the families dysfunctional ourselves. And yet Scripture shows us that the grace and mercy of God offers great hope. This isn't a message of despair today. I'm not here to tell you your family's a mess. Go away and do something about it. I'm here to say to you that a God of grace and sovereign salvation looks upon you and your place in a family that may have dysfunctions of all kinds. Just as he looked upon this family of Jacob and the angry, devious, conniving, murderous gang of thugs that Jacob gave birth to, and he made them into the core of the nation of Israel. Is that amazing or what? God's exemplar nation put before all the other nations of earth started with the raw material of this messed up family of Jacob. I've got two main points today that I think this text brings out. And if you're wanting me to say something about the actual taking of Joseph into Egypt, that'll come next week. I just read a little farther ahead than I should have probably. First of all, I want you to look at Jacob's household where sins of the father infected most of the children. And secondly, I want to try to show you this. You can follow the Lord even in a family that opposes him. First of all, this. Truly, in Jacob's household, we find that the sins of the father infected most of the children. Let me just remind you again, overlap here a little with the background so we all are thinking together. Jacob had four wives. The first was named Leah. He was tricked by his uncle Laban to have Leah inserted into the marriage tent, and he thought he would married Rachel, and he got Leah. And he got six sons and a daughter named Dinah from Leah. Then came Rachel, who was the bride of his heart, the one he truly loved. He was tender with her. He desired her most of all. He had to work six extra years to pay the bride price for her, and he willingly did so. And she gave him the two youngest sons, Joseph and Benjamin, who were much younger than the others. There were two others in the picture. They were actually maidservants, Bilhah and Zilpah. They were the maidservants of Leah, and he fathered two sons with each of them. Now, I'm going to go over this again, even though I mentioned it last time, because people have questions about this. And they say, well, wait a minute. Now, this Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, these are the great men of the Old Testament How is it that Jacob just blithely goes along in polygamy like this, has multiple wives? Well, that was the example set for him by all the surrounding nations. It was very common in all the nations of the Canaanites around him to do this. 
But we have foolish people today. You'll see programs on TV. They Certainly multiple marriage is a, a strange subject to encounter in America today, and yet it's there. So you'll find something on the History Channel or some uh, special documentary or something to talk about uh, an encampment of multiple marriage out in the desert of Utah or somewhere. And people will be quick to say, someone will be quick to defend, well, it's in the Bible. It's all right. It was in the Bible after all. Yes, indeed, it's in the Bible. And never once for a moment or in any single instance does the Bible give approval to multiple marriage. Absolutely not. It is, in every instance, a grievous error undertaken by people who were perhaps nominally godly in some way, but not in that way. And there are people who go around saying, well, somebody in the Bible did it. It must be all right. No, sir. What you think you might encounter is that, here, take our example here, that maybe the text of Scripture would, would sort of give a little lecture off to the side against polygamy when Jacob first got himself involved and say, but this did not please the Lord or something like that. It doesn't even say that. How does the Bible show disapproval of polygamy? It's really not complicated. It doesn't announce it with a billboard every time it happens. In fact, it never does that. But what it shows is the absolutely disastrous consequences that come from multiple marriage down the line, not for one generation, but many generations to follow. Warfare between the various sons and various branches. God's word does not wink at polygamy. Tell anybody who ever tries to defend multiple marriage from the Bible, they are badly mistaken. From Genesis 2 onwards, Scripture makes it very clear. A man shall leave his father and mother and cling to his wife, singular. That's man, man, and wife, woman, clinging to one another for life. That is the Bible's pattern that is never broken, never withdrawn, never retracted. It is always the ideal of God. And whatever is not according to that pattern is shown to bring bitter chains of circumstances and consequences. Consider David. I'm not going to go far down this line here, but David. Here's this man, how godly he was, his wonderful Psalms. So many times David is an exemplar of great faith, a great man of God. God did not approve David's multiple marriages. And his kingdom split apart as he neared death because of it. And one son emerged supreme, Solomon, who was the, the worst offender of all in the entire Bible. He had his harems, buildings for his harems, close to his palace. And Solomon's entire glorious reign that was so grand in materialistic terms, eating off of gold plates, the queen of Sheba came to behold the wealth and the wisdom of Solomon. And she must have seen the harems and wondered, what kind of wisdom does this guy really have? And the whole reign of Solomon dissolved into civil war and fighting because of the many sons of Solomon. Now, I just want to land on that, and I'm going to leave it, but we need to see that this whole family is the way it is and has all these people fighting one another because of Jacob's sin of multiple marriage, which bore consequences all the way along. But another area where you can say the, the sons of Jacob inherited the sins of the father is in Jacob's inconsistent spirituality. At the beginning of his life, he was exposed to true knowledge of the Lord from his father, 
Isaac. But yet he and his mother got together and uh, decided to trick the father and connive together. And it certainly turned away from a godly pattern of behavior. And worship seemed to move out of Jacob's life. He left the homeland of his parents, you might remember, had a great vision of a ladder reaching into heaven. God was speaking to him there, making future promises. But then he went out and basically was involved in materialism most of his life for many decades. He became wealthy, very wealthy. But he did it by cunning and by manipulation. He had a master teacher in his uncle Laban. And there wasn't much of God in Jacob's life. Until that night, we've dealt with a number of months ago, that time when Jacob had that wrestling with an unknown person, that mysterious wrestling match in, in the dark the night before he went to meet Esau, his brother, and seek to be reconciled. Jacob was reconciled with God, and he limped away from that encounter. But from that point on, he's a different man. Not perfect, but different. He built an altar at Bethel. He showed basically a pattern of a worshiping man of God from that time on. But here's the problem. By that time that Jacob made this turn in his life spiritually, ten of his older sons, all the sons of Leah and Zilpah and Bilhah, were basically grown men. And their spiritual patterns and patterns of immorality had already been set and cast more or less in concrete. It was Joseph and Benjamin who were the youngest sons who were nurtured in the home where Jacob was now walking with the Lord. And he left a different pattern on their lives. And thank goodness we wouldn't have had the the great story of Joseph if that hadn't been true. Later when Joseph was found in Egypt and they began to recognize what a leader he was, what a wonderful man he was, in Genesis 41-38, the Egyptians, not Christian people, not even Jewish people, followers of of Jehovah, atheistic people who worshiped crocodiles and the sun and the stars. In Genesis 41, 38, looked at Joseph and said, can we find anyone like this Joseph who is so filled with the Spirit of the Lord? Well, some of that came from influence of Jacob who had turned to his God and was worshiping. I want to make an appeal here. My appeal is to fathers, and I'll include grandfathers too because I'm both. Can you think about this, how Jacob turned around in his life and how he had a negative influence on ten sons but a positive influence on at least two as he changed spiritually? My appeal is to you fathers, would-be fathers, young men who aren't married yet, grandfathers, Will you consider seizing the opportunity to be a man of God and a pastor to your wife and your children? Young men, maybe the children you don't even imagine yet. And you might say, what do you mean? I'm not anybody's pastor. I didn't go to seminary. I'm not ordained. I'm not a pastor. Yes, you are. If you have a wife and if you have one child, you are a pastor. There's a congregation that looks to you for spiritual leadership. And if you're not providing it, you're providing the opposite. You're imprinting unbelief and conniving and materialism and all the negative things that you could think of upon a life if you're not applying the imprint 
of godliness in some way. And we're not talking here about you as a dad needing to be a great Bible scholar. We're just talking about some very basic things that you try to do. Lead your family in prayer. Take teaching moments that come up. The evening news is on. You see something going on, the garbage that spills out of the evening news. And maybe you can raise that subject and say to your son, what do you think of that, son? What do do you think that person should have done there with that trouble they got themselves in? And use some instructional moments with your sons and daughters. I I have seen, this is a, a Rogers principle, not something I got out of a book. So you can take it as untrue if you want. And I'll tell you, when I say this principle, it's, it's going to be hurtful to some people, particularly maybe to single moms. But I would say this principle that I've observed to you, rarely do I see that children, particularly sons, progress spiritually or morally very far beyond the example that is set for them by a father. Whether the father's in the home or not, Boys tend to become their fathers, for good or ill. That's a generalization, and it might scare you, Dad. You didn't have any idea exactly that they were watching you that closely, but they are. And your character or lack thereof is being imprinted on young lives. Even in little things, I have told many friends of a, a characteristic that stood out about my dad. Years before he turned his life over to Christ, one time, We were in a store together. Dad paid for an item. We went home about four miles away from the store. As we pulled into the driveway, Dad took the money out of his pocket that he had. He paid in cash, and uh, he realized he had too much money, about $5 too much. And he said, whoa, wait a minute, son. You can either go in the house, but I've got to go back to the hardware store. I thought, what's this? He must have forgotten something. My dad went back and asked for the manager and said, your clerk gave me $4.72, whatever it was, too much. Here's the money. Here I am, 50 years later. I remember that. That was printed on me. I had a dad of good character, and later a dad who at age 39 surrendered his life to Jesus Christ. And the dad of good character became a godly dad too. That's the challenge I put out there to you fathers. You don't have to be the great Bible teacher of the world. You have to be a man of integrity. You have to be a man who cares about the next generation and a man who knows he has a role as a spiritual leader. Jacob squandered lots of years and and put a lot of negativity out into the, the ten older sons, and he couldn't change it so well. But he started new. He built an altar to the Lord at Bethel, an earlier chapter tells us. And from that point on until his old age, He basically was faithful to the Lord. He made repentance and a change. And you can do that too. Now for a second main point today, we move into the spotlight with not Jacob in the spotlight, but Joseph. And my second principle I see here is to say that you can follow the Lord in a family that opposes him. Some commentators, it's become sort of popular among commentators to uh, criticize Joseph because a previous generation always said there are two men in the Old Testament about whom nothing negative is is really emphasized, and that's Joseph and Daniel. It's pretty hard to find anything too negative. But then people say, well, wait a minute. There must be something wrong with this guy. 
Look at this, verse 2. He brought a bad report about their father. And so the commentator will say, oh, well, see, he was a snitch. He was a, he was a proud young upstart who thought he was better than everybody, and he made up a bad report. Well, it doesn't say he made up a bad report. It says he brought a bad report. And I think the right interpretation of that is given by Jim Boyce writing on this passage that says, Joseph was more of a truth-teller than a tale-bearer. Do you understand the difference? A tale-bearer says, I, I have a chance to get my brothers in trouble, and so I'll just emphasize the negative and tell Dad all that nasty stuff they were doing. A truth-teller just comes and gives an honest version of what happened. And we think that's what was really going on. And that's why Jacob sent him out again. He said, I, I need to know if things are going well. I've got thousands of dollars invested in those flocks that they're tending. Are they selling some on the black market? What's going on? I need a report. And he knew Joseph would bring an honest one. And remember, too, that colorful coat. You can say, well, what kind of a proud peacock was this guy parading around in that coat? Joseph didn't buy that coat. It wasn't Joseph's idea to have that coat. It was his father's idea. And I believe that the animosity because of the coat and the dreams and everything else was not really directed at Joseph. It was directed at Jacob by ten sons who never had any of his affection. And they wanted it. They wanted what Joseph had. And they didn't receive it very well. So they struck out at their father through Joseph. Well, maybe you think, too, that Joseph was a little foolish to tell his family these two dreams. Well, there again, if they were only human dreams, yeah, it might have been better to keep them to yourself. But we know from our omniscient, you know, we stand above this text and we know how the whole thing came out. We know that these dreams are revelations from God of things that are going to happen. So all Joseph is doing is speaking, in a sense, the word of God as he told those dreams. And why couldn't it have been possible in that large family that someone, one of the older brothers with a little more sense, Reuben or Judah, could have said, hey, you know what, Let, let's just wait and find out if anything ever comes of these dreams. And probably the, he'll just fall on his face by the foolishness of his dreams being proved. But everybody just went to the side of hating him for the dreams. Well, quite a few of you I know, I've been a pastor long enough to know that many, many people have in their families some level of bad relations, parent and child, husband and wife, neighbor and neighbor, cousin and cousin, whatever, husband and in-laws, you work out all the permutations by which there are negative reactions within families. And here, don't we have just about the worst they could be? You know, imagine uh, Cousin Joe is driving to your house for Thanksgiving and he, he arrives by himself before everybody else and, and you say, you know what, I hate that guy, Joe. I hate having to have him for Thanksgiving. Let's kill him and bury him in the backyard before the rest of the family gets here. And, and they'll never know. They'll eat turkey and cranberries and won't miss Uncle Joe. Well, of course, that's silly. But... Can you imagine a family where their automatic reaction was, here comes that dreamer, let's kill him. This is their father's son. It was like a hornet's nest of demons had leaped out of these brothers' minds and voices. And did you notice the little thing? 
that I did read, and getting ahead of myself a little bit, but in verse 25, after they took him and threw him in the pit, what did they do? Have a guilty discussion of their guilty conscience? They sat down to eat. I bet they were eating the goods that Joseph had brought from home, the snack packs, the apple pie, whatever it was. There they sat, enjoying what Joseph had brought, even though they were willing to kill their brother. Isn't it true? If you can remember perhaps when you became a believer in Christ, if you were converted as an adult and you suddenly represented yourself to your family and you wanted to witness to them and tell them about Christ and the way of salvation and everything and that it's not just about being a good person and everybody ends up the same place and all that. You need to trust Christ as your Savior. Can't you remember the reactions you got and you still get for that matter? from some relative or some friend or some co-worker. I know I've told you in the past, my dad went right out and and witnessed to a a good friend, neighbor friend of his, who probably was his best male friend. Went to a Lutheran church and sang in the choir. This is not a condemnation of Lutherans. Uh, And that man turned on my dad and would never speak to him again or have anything to do with him because he thought my father had become a religious nut. Have you had that reaction from someone in your family who doesn't want to hear it, doesn't want to hear about Christ, has sarcastic remarks because you are rocking the boat of their little quasi-religion that says, behave, be a good citizen, pay your taxes, and everything will work out for you. You're rocking that boat by telling them they need Jesus Christ or they're lost. Don't tell me that there aren't represented in this room Dozens of family cracks and places where there is brokenness and where there is difficulty of this type. Remember how Jesus said in John fifteen eighteen, If the world hates you, know this, it hated me before you. And if you were of the world, it would love you. But you're not of the world. You're of me. I chose you out of this world, Jesus said there. And again, in Matthew 10.36, a person's enemies will be those of his own household. And whoever loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. I used to think that was a cruel verse, cruel statement from Jesus. You're not allowed to love your father and mother more than Christ. Well, he's talking about the father and mother who rejects your faith, who's at war with God and at war with the Holy Spirit. And you're told there, they're not your first loyalty anymore. Your Lord and Savior is. And how about this? Prior to going to his cross and rising from the dead, do you realize this? Think about this. I bet you never thought of it. Jesus came from a dysfunctional family. His own brothers didn't believe in him. They went out, remember, they wanted to drag him away because they thought he was making a fool of himself. They said, he's, he's out of his mind. We've got to get him out of the public eye. Jesus came from a dysfunctional family. Have you come to the point in life where you can say, you know what, I think I come from a dysfunctional family. I wouldn't have said that myself 15 years ago. I say it today. I come from a dysfunctional family. Not perhaps in the drastic way of some people. This past week, we had to move my mom into critical, or not critical, but skilled care 
at Quarryville Home, where she's lived for 10 years now, and make a move. And so in doing that, I had to be in touch with my two sisters in other states or other areas and discuss this. And we all, you know, work to agree on my mother's care at her age, 95. I didn't call my brother. I have a brother. I haven't talked to him in a decade. Maybe we should say he hasn't talked to me in a decade, but that sounds petty. But my brother's had no interest in my mother's care for 15 years. He hasn't talked to her in that long. So we didn't inform my brother of this change because he doesn't want to hear it. I come from a dysfunctional family. Most of us do, actually, if we're realistic and stop and think about it, maybe in a minor way, maybe in a major way. But who is hearing me today that doesn't have some example of a break or a strain or a crack in their family structure, either earlier from earlier in life or even at the present day? I want to remind you that our God was so determined to show his saving power that he took on these ten very nasty sons of Jacob. As cold-hearted would-be murderers, he mixed them together with one younger brother who was a man of faith and stirred that mix real well. And out of that stew pot, God created his chosen nation called Israel. Is that amazing or what? Why wouldn't God have chosen a nice, well-behaved family set up, you know, where everybody was pious, everybody was had very good ethical behavior, and he said, oh, look at how good these people are. They're going to be my model nation. (laughs) It amazes me what he started with. He took these nasty characters and every scrap of the suffering and dysfunction that they exerted to their younger brother to accomplish his redemptive purposes, not just for them, but for all the nations to come and all time to come. Israel came from this. The broadcaster Alistair Begg, who, by the way, is an outstanding Bible expositor, if you can ever encounter his program. Alistair Begg said this, quote him, There's no human reason whatsoever why Joseph should have emerged from the emotional and spiritual carnage of his family to become the incredible man of God that he later was. Begg said, The only explanation is to say that God purposed it to be so. This was God. So be encouraged today that if out of Joseph's background there came a man of God used as a stirring example for all time, surely the God of Joseph can and will sustain us when we have to swim against the tide of people's disdain or rejection of the things of the gospel and of God. God has a lot of practice in preserving believers in just that situation. Thanks be to his great name. Our Father, there are people here today struggling within families, within marriages, within extended families or families of their original origin. And we know there aren't easy and magic answers, and in some cases there are people who are pretty far gone in their opposition to you. But we pray, O God, that you by your power would give strength and encouragement and wisdom and perseverance to those who are your disciples in Jesus. 
to stand if they must absolutely alone, to stand and be faithful, to be your ministers within a family as a mother, a father, a parent, and whatever relations they have. Help us, Lord. We're weak. We're dysfunctional ourselves. Only you can bring us through this. Amen.